This week on Living the Call, Deacon Charlie talks with Jeff Schiffelbein and Nick Besner. Both are husbands, fathers, and managing partners for Undivided Life, an organization that humanizes business through strategy and culture consulting. They're also co-hosts of the Beatitudes podcast. In this episode, Deacon Charlie, Jeff, and Nick discuss what it means to have an undivided life, giving strategies on how to truly live out our top priorities at work, but ultimately, in each and every encounter we have with others in our lives. Being who I am is like drinking water. I'm going to share it because I never know when that might happen. And the more you share it, the more you realize those little seeds are being planted and germinated and watered and growing. And I may never get to see it. That's fine. That's not why you're doing it. And if I can't catechize my own nieces and nephews and siblings and whoever, then at least maybe through me, other people are getting it. And then maybe through Deacon Charlie or Nick Besner, my nieces and nephews and everybody else are getting fed in some of those ways or curious because they want to have the joy that they see somebody else living a gospel life. This is Living the Call. Jeff Schiffelbein, Nick Besner, welcome to the show. I'm so happy to be here. Yeah, I'm stoked. I don't know, this was less than a year ago. I said, someday I'm going to be sitting with Deacon Charlie. I don't know whose studio it was going to be in, but we were going to be on a podcast together. I just had this vision after I saw you on stage. So to be sitting in your studio in in California. Sounded like a good idea. I think it, I think, <laughs> I think it would it be. And then we got, uh, I guess this is two-thirds of the Beatitudes, right? That's right. So the other Beatitude is back in Texas because it's kind of our insurance policy. We've got to make sure one of us is always uh, safe and locked up. <laughs> <laughs> was, was that always like a just known thing you were going to do uh, three a co-host? Like, did you know no, before you put no, your show up? Not at all. What's the story on that? <laughs> so I've had a Catholic radio show in the local station in mm-hmm. Dallas for six and a half years, which is a Holy Spirit moment like you wouldn't believe. And it, about three and a half years into it, I thought I was going to quit because, you know, eventually you're just kind of on air. You have no feedback. I was a, a solo host. Yeah, it's a tough thing about radio. It's you tough. get a lot. Mm-hmm. I interviewed a guy named Paul Kolker on air, and at the first commercial break, I'm having so much fun. I said, you and I need to be co-host, not not my sidekick, like full-time. Mm-hmm. At the second commercial break, the station manager comes in. He says, Paul, have you ever thought about having your own show? And I said, get out of here. He's spoken for. <laughs> <laughs> and that progressed to over two years ago, Paul and I have been doing this show, and we mm-hmm. turned it into something more fun, more lively, like this combination of humor and holiness And we even pitched, like, what if we had a national show? What if it was more frequent? And then we just decided, if we're going to do that, we're going to have to kind of take it on ourselves. Mm. Well, six, seven months ago, Nick and I, who's here on the show right now, said, we're going to start this company together. We're going to do these online courses. To do that, you got to build out a studio. you got to have the right equipment. I said, Nick, if we get all this equipment and all this stuff set up, why don't we just have a podcast in here too? And he said, what are you thinking? I said, well... I think it's called the Beatitudes because we've been talking about this for a year, (laughs) Paul and I had. And he's like, can I be a Beatitude? I said, you already are. Let's do this. What does it take to be a Beatitude? That's what I want to understand. What are the qualifications besides knowing you? Maleness. Maleness, okay. Check. (laughs) (laughs) Loving Jesus or a desire to love Jesus more than you already do, right? So there's a seeker quality to it. Um, A commitment to grow in the actual Beatitudes— even if you are starting from whatever level you're at. I'm making this up as I go here. And then more than anything, somebody who understands that it's important to live your life in a fully authentic friendship way where just being Catholic and holy and focused on Jesus doesn't make you boring or, yeah. or taking away like who you are. And at the same time, 
you can be at the bar having a great time, still talking about <clears throat> Jesus, like this full integration, the integrated life, as I heard you give a talk mm, last year. Yeah. I think that's the Beatitudes. Yeah. And let me jump in there on love, right? You can't love what you don't know mm. and you, you don't know what you can't spend time with or don't spend time with. So you have to start with spending time, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. If you're ever going to get to love, time is a That's requirement. The, cur- <laughs> the, the currency. Yeah, right. sure right. is. I remember so, hearing a homily one time that was just about that. I was like, listen, you want to grow in your faith life, you got to spend just more time with God. Every relationship is about the investment of time, right? And it doesn't stop just because the object of that of that time is the Trinity. In fact, that is the basis for all of it. So it makes sense. No, oh, exactly. Well, and I'll say this, I'm making up the qualifications. I think you're a beatitude if you think you're a beatitude because it's the population of males who love Jesus and want to have authentic fraternity with one another. I qualify. You're in. I'm in. I could just get, <laughs> I could just get in there. Yeah. <laughs> now the comedy piece of it, cause I like the, the combination of humor and holiness is that something, first of all, naturally occurring for you guys in your own dynamic, in your own relationship? Is it, there's a lot of that, that, that is part of that? I'll say for Jeff and Paul, definitely. Yeah. I'm getting there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Cause you, you, you definitely strike me, Jeff, as a guy who's got like the, the quip, the, the thing, the sort of lighthearted approach instantly. And it's easy for you to access it. That doesn't happen naturally for a lot of people. True. And I think there's something special about that. The humor is never done in a cheap way. It's never with foul language or innuendos. It's actually, it requires an intellectual wit or um, kind of a connection to a context and a story and pulling this thread through a show. When I had Paul on the radio, when it was just, he was a guest, Paul's actually a professional improv comedian you know, every single weekend with a big troop in, in Dallas and a professional actor uh, in addition to his day job. And I could sense how quickly he was playing off of me and vice versa. And it's it's one of those Holy Spirit moments where I envisioned a future and I felt peaceful and joyful mm. and ready to go do this this thing with him for the church and with him. And then we did a little bit of just kind of pre-recording and working and even working on um, what would our our kind of trailer look like with Nick and Nick may not think he's the funny guy in the group, but in a one and a half minute trailer, I used two or three lines from Nick because he plays the perfect role. I mean, this is this is authentically who Nick is, but mm-hmm. this perfect role of finance guru, businessman, you know, grew up authentically like in his, ca- I'm going to quit using the word authentically for a second, but extremely Catholic in his upbringing, yet he's goofy and ready to ready to put it all out there when we're improving or rapping or trying to, to jive with one another. Mm. And I was like, this actually works even better having the three of us, just like you would have maybe three people calling a, uh, a pro football game. You need the color commentary. You need sure you know, the play by play. That's right. Yeah. Well, actually I was going to say that, you know, every great comedy duo trio, et cetera, usually has like the straight guy, right? Yeah. I mean, in this case where everybody's straight, but you know what I mean? Straight <laughs> from a comedic standpoint, Um, and so there's nothing wrong with having that. In fact, it brings a little bit of, you know, it it reminds me of the show, the office, right? You guys, there's, there's like the characters that are the equivalent of the straight guy who are the people that are actual normal people. And then these ridiculous characters, but it's the interaction between those two that makes everything funny. If they were all ridiculous, if it was all Michael Scott, it wouldn't be as funny. It'd fall apart. Yeah. And so then what's interesting is it's a guest-driven show. Yeah. Uh, we're doing it twice a week. So Monday's the long show, 30, 40 minutes. Friday's a bonus episode with the same guest. 
And because of this like comfort of the way that we're all playing off of each other, just like you, you walk in, we pray and we go. That's it. That guest, they can't even help it. They just kind of get suckered into where they don't even realize there's a mic in front of them anymore. And the guest ends up being in, in everything we've shot so far, probably the funniest person in the room. It's Good. almost like they drop their guard and they get to just enjoy mm. having friendship. Mm. It's pretty cool. Yeah. Well, that's where the authenticity comes from, right? I, t- I tell people my goal, my hope is that the equipment disappear. Yeah. And then we just have that conversation. I've had people like, um, you know, I got to go to the bathroom. I was like, so go to the bathroom. Let's do you know that. I mean? Just go to the bathroom. <laughs> um, because there's something about this medium done well that that welcomes that kind of spontaneity, that authenticity, that genuineness. And it's what makes it different than radio. Nothing wrong with radio, but this is just not the same. You've done both. You should know. Oh, yeah. Have you had those moments where you forget that the... And I know you're kind of saying it kind of disappears, but you're so emotional. You're so connected to a story or you're drawn into what somebody's experience was that you almost got to kind of shake your head and be like, oh, wait, yeah, we're still recording something here. Yeah, no question. And I've forgotten it to record in other pieces. <laughs> we're, talking about, we're talking about rookie mistakes uh, a moment ago. Yeah, I've done this. whole. And in one case, I remember this is early on, but we were halfway <laughs> through the show. And this was a, it was a remote guest. Yeah. So I used this platform um, called Riverside. And something happened. I don't know what it was. It was probably on their side where they were no longer being recorded. And they were in the middle of this like just golden moment, right? And I realized it and I I didn't stop it at that moment, right? I just, I I was like thinking, having this out of body moment, like what am I going (laughs) to do to recover all of this? And I had to break it to him eventually. And we, you know, reset it. I said, listen, go back about 10 minutes to when you were saying this, but it's daunting, for a host, like you got to like make sure all this stuff is working, brother. We <laughs> first of all, we bought this really nice equipment that we you had did. no right owning. Like we we didn't even have the cables whenever we were signing all these agreements with people for this distribution, right? <laughs> and so uh, <laughs> we record our first episode. Great guest, Kevin Fitzpatrick. He's witty. He's goofy. He's nerdy. He's like perfect. And then we get ready to do the bonus show, mm. right? I told you it's a Friday show, and I set up everything. And Nick goes, "Okay," and you. You need to press record on the the sound part of it too, right? And I go, what? And he goes, record right there. And I go, oh, I haven't done that all day. And they all, uh, they're like, ha ha. And I said, brother. Not and kidding. they see it on my face. Terror. To, to reset mentally and act like you didn't just do a 40-minute show with somebody. That's impossible. It is. Yeah. I got some feedback from from the people that, Spoke Street people, that, and they've been incredibly helpful to us. I know yeah. you've worked with them too. Yep. They're like, hey, you can't reference inside jokes from 30 minutes before the show. And I said, well, here's the inside story. We actually did the entire show. So I was struggling. <laughs> I was so mad <laughs> when wow. we started that. So wow. yes, rookie mistakes of all kinds. Yeah. How's it been for you, Nick? It's been awesome. You yeah. know, Jeff said, hey, we're going to do this podcast. And I'm like, ah, that seems out of my comfort zone or just not something on my radar. Um, it'll be a good, you know, top of the funnel, you know, whatever. Uh, and then it's turned out to be this huge blessing mm. and it's, it's really exceeded expectations in all different ways and I'm loving it. That's awesome. I don't know if you, if you've yet, I know the show's brand new, but if you haven't yet, when you do start getting feedback from people you don't know, that's the moment where you're like, okay, this thing is now kind of broken out. It's out in the wild on its own. Our number one fan is a guy that none of us know. And he makes these very Already. specific, oh, very specific wow. comments <clears throat> on YouTube that are, they're enlightening and affirming. Well, we had this poetry competition at the end of our show with Anthony D'Ambrosio um, earlier in this week, and this guy's commentary back to us was in poetry form about our show. Wow. I was like, Nick, this couldn't be more specific. 
he's proving to us that he listened to the entire show. So, mm. um, yeah, more of that is, <laughs> you know, I like the part where you go to Easter dinner and everybody's giving you feedback on your show. That's cool, but that's your family. That's your family. They're listening. <laughs> they right. have to listen. Right. Yeah. yeah. I've always had tens of listeners on the radio. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, you didn't even know what you had on the radio before. That's very true. Now you can get a little bit deeper into the analytics. You're um, nailing the difference, too. There. I can't yeah. stand the radio. I, I, I love it because I know that it's a gift, but you get done and you're like, that's it? Like, nobody could nod at you. Nobody's even texting you. It's just— Well, it's and you just don't get a chance thing. to, like, really unfurl what it is you want to talk about. I, I do a lot of radio. I do a lot of Spanish radio, too. Um, oh. the, the folks from EWTN— Radio in Espanol. They they found me somehow, and it's like I'm on a show probably once every couple of weeks, and it's you're not really thinking. You're you're not naturally who you are on radio. Um, That's the thing, because I, as a guest, am very conscious that the guy's about to cut me off because um, there's about to be a break. So now I'm collapsing what I wanted to say over this period of time into like this period of time, and then it just doesn't come through in the same way. Again, I think that radio can be very good for a lot of things, but driving discovery, nuanced understanding of things, learning who somebody is, those are things that are limitations. Yeah, it's almost like you're just putting a line out in the water, and if somebody bites on it, hopefully there's something you can reel them into. Maybe there's a resource they're going to, a website, they go and watch some, they they go and listen to this podcast because they heard you on that. Yeah. That kind of stuff makes sense to me, but I'll tell you what else I think is funny that probably happens to you. Somebody will walk up to me and talk to me about something they've just heard me say Mm -hmm. on a radio show or a podcast, it's no maybe idea. months or years since I said it. I'm like, I don't know what we're even referring to, but mm. I'm, you seem really happy or mad or <laughs> something's going on inside of you that I'm a part of. That happens to me in my homilies. But usually yeah. it's somebody who comes up and says like, I really loved it when you said that about the heart of Jesus. And I'm like, I'm pretty sure I didn't say that. I'm but, sure everybody's heard this. What is your homily prep process? Mm. So prayer is number one. Amen. And, and that's something that, you know, it sounds really logical, but it's something that I really struggled with. I kind of wanted to ask both of you guys about this because I think my preaching has begun to come into kind of full blossom recently, very recently, even though I've been ordained for five years, most of it because I was always a presenter. And there's a difference between presenting and preaching that I never fully understood. So the very first part is prayer. Um, And there's been plenty of times where I've walked in thinking that I'm going to preach something and being completely moved that that is not what the Holy Spirit wants me to talk about. So what I do, my prep, is to leave about 40% open for him. Oh. And maybe as I get older, it'll become 80 or 90 or 100, um, but that's part of the structure of it. Um, so pray. Second is pray the scriptures themselves, right? Because, again, I'm sure you guys are similar in the sense, like, you know you've got your confidence move. You've got your confidence topic. You've oh, got yeah. your— I've got this insight that always blows everybody away. So you want to always share those things, right? But it may not be a homily. A homily is a very specific thing. At least it's supposed to be, you know. And there's a lot of guys who sermonize almost every Sunday. um, But a homily is supposed to be the kind of cracking open of the word on that given day. And that may or may not coincide with this great, you know, insight that you want to share that gets everybody goosebumps, you know. Um, So it's praying with the scriptures and making sure that I speak on the scriptures. Um, And then, you know, I want to also, um, you know, kind of manage the time as well, because as a presenter, I'm sure you you guys can do it too. Somebody said, hey, I just need you to just rap for 45 minutes on X. You could probably do it. Go, yeah. Yeah, You know, you could probably do it. But in this case, it's like, it's more like seven to 10 minutes and it can't be 
a tenth or a fifteenth of what you want. It's got to be the whole thing yeah. in that period of time, right? Um, so that's sort of the prep. The, the last thing I would say is that as a deacon, the other aspect that I've been discovering is that there is a diaconal character to a deacon's homily. There should be okay. a diaconal character. And this is something that is kind of coming to light for me, where the deacon has a role that he plays, a very unique charism, right? He's sort of the bridge between the church and the yeah, people. The priest can't play that role. Exactly. And in and, and my opinion, nor should the deacon always aspire to give the great theological depth or even the whole pastoral piece, right? Those, those kind of can reside in other places. But sort of discovering what that diaconal character is. So what I ask myself at the end of a homily preparation is, is this a deacon's homily? Wow. The is humility a of a deacon's homily. homily. I've never even thought about that until you said that, but it's so true because you don't want to see your deacon get up there and be a show stealer. Exactly. But if my priest got up there and knocked my socks off with something really powerful, or what about I do the, want that. Or what about the bishop? You oh, know what amen. I mean? It's like, yeah. So so it's like, I, I want to keep it. So I'll, I'll introduce a lot of things like, I bring in things from my everyday, from my work. You know, mm -hmm. I was, you might hear in my homily, yeah, I was in this conference room and X happened. You know, it's like bringing in some of that, oh, like this guy like kind of lives where I live, right? Um, so I try to make that, you know, shine through in, in a different way. But it's it's an evolution. Dude, I think the entire diaconate is kind of, uh, the theology of the diaconate is something that's evolving in real time. I mean, we've only had it back for like 50 years. Yeah. And in church time, that's like Nothing. yesterday. Yeah, it's a cup of coffee. Do you get, when you're giving a talk on a, a big stage, mm -hmm. do you, what are nerves like for you there? And how does that parallel or feel different than a homily? Yeah. I think we talked about this a little bit because my last thing, my last big thing, I did a smaller thing uh, two weeks ago, but my last big thing was uh, the Columbus Men's Conference. And I think that was maybe 3,000 guys. Yeah. It's a pretty big room. So like big airplane hangar, that kind of deal. And um, I'm being 100% honest to you because I didn't expect this. I was 0% nervous, yeah. zero. Like, I mean, questioning myself, going like, you know, what is this? Part of that was the subject matter because um, I, I tried to treat it in my mind. I was like, I want to have this be like a homily, yeah. like a 45-minute homily. That's what I said to myself, right? So part of it was that, and that took down the temperature a little bit. And then the second thing was that a lot of the content was about my dad. My dad passed in 2015. So it was very like personal, yeah. you know, and it's like, well, you can't screw up because it's your, it's your, it's your thing. It's your you, story. Should, you don't have to script personal. Yeah, exactly. So I was really low. Other settings now, man, I get nervous for sure. And in homilies, um, the thing about a homily is that, you know, you've got your pastor, you've got another, uh, a con, a con celebrant, you've got, I preach with the bishop present, like, and so you're always thinking like, you know, there's a little bit of that. There's, there's sort of stage fright on both sides. Yeah. You know what I mean? As a deacon. Um, you know, but with that, it's all about just, you know, trusting God and just saying, Hey, whatever, every time I go up, you know how the deacon will reverence the altar as he's walking up to, to give his hump, to read the gospel and then to, to preach. And I say the same thing every single time that I reverence that altar. I say your words, not mine. Yeah. That's all I say. So, you know, and there's been tons of times, like I said, where it's like, I really wanted to just say this one thing and it just never happened. It never came out. And, you know. You get feedback, obviously. People take things from it. Some of it, usually it's positive because people like to say nice things. <laughs> no. And my answer to everybody is, uh, you know, that was a really beautiful homily. I always say, thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. You know, yeah. I, I've been speaking for over 20 years, but it's almost always been as kind of this solo artist, separate from my work, whether it's guest lecturing, talks for corporate groups, uh, doing leadership conferences, doing stuff for the Catholic Church. But it's always just been kind of 
more or less a hobby, yeah. even, even when I got paid for it. Starting this business, Nick and I started a business together uh, three months ago called Undivided Life. It's consulting, strategy, and culture consulting. So now all of a sudden, all these talks that I've been doing, they, they kind of have a connection right back into what we're doing, right? We're leading people to create thriving organizations, to bring humanity back to work, to truly live out their priorities, mine being, and Nick is the same, you know, God before wife, wife before kids, kids before all else. And so this undivided life mentality is very much Catholic social teachings. But I share all that because now I get to travel around, including being here at your table with my business partner. Yeah. Brother, before I'm going to walk up and give a talk in front of Conscious Capitalism or the National Men's Conference, I get to hug my brother Nick and we join each other in a prayer before I go up there that it's awesome. God's words and what did these men or these people or whoever need, need to, hear, to hear, the people on this this podcast need to hear, let that be what's next. Because I like what you said, there's a lot I want to share. I can, I can knock your socks off, mm-hmm. but should I? Now, sometimes I should because that's what we're being called to do. And I just gave my biggest talk. I, I was actually in Ohio two weeks ago with Nick mm-hmm. for the National Men's Conference. Yeah, you were at the bigger one, I think. Thousands in the Jonathan room. Jonathan Rumi. Yeah. yeah. I got to hug Jonathan Rumi on stage, but I had to push the... He arch- was on the show a month ago. <laughs> I saw that. Yeah. Great show. Mm-hmm. I had to you. push the Archduke of Austria out of my way. So I could... <laughs> I mean, it's pretty Gr- typical. Grandson of two saints, no big deal. <laughs> Excuse me, your eminence. Archduke, yeah. get moved. I'm going for Jesus here. Yeah. <laughs> this is called a stiff arm in America. So, uh, but so I don't know how many people were online, but here I am in this audit- or arena. Yeah. And brother, I, I do like being nervous before I speak. I think it's good for me. I think it shows that I care a lot. And when I'm not nervous, I actually get a little worried about, did I actually prep for this? On stage, and Nick saw this happen to me. I had a 10-minute challenge for these men. Not a human being moved a muscle. I put them into this place through the opening where they didn't move a muscle. And as I was watching them, and you know the spotlights are on you, I could see the spit coming out of my mouth. And I was like, wow, do I spit this much all the time? (laughs) (laughs) Answer's probably yes. Answer's yes. And so I'm going through this, and I hit this moment where in my brain I've hit page four. I'm I'm rounding the final Mm. stretch. And I ask myself, am I on page four? And I get in my head for the only oh, yeah. second I mean, it's like of the Peter, whole talk. Peter walking on water. And then you yeah. collapse. So I used it to do the reflective. And everybody was like, oh, here comes the intense part. So it set <laughs> that up pause nicely, was perfect. <laughs> but it was not meant to be a meaningful pause. I thought I was about to get lost in my head. Mm. And God came through. And uh, it was a really... Well, as you know, Jonathan Rumi asked to hug me on stage. Yeah. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good uh, good takeaway. Yeah. Sad as only Jeff can say it. <laughs> hey, Deacon, uh, the joke at the Bad Dudes is you've got the smart finance guru, Nick Besner. You have the professional comedian, Paul Kolker. And then I'm known as the Jeffinition of humility. The Jeffinition. <laughs> I like that. In, in, in my kind of reckoning, there's only three kinds of people. There's input people, output people, and throughput people. And that doesn't mean that we can't all play in other areas. Like I know, sure. what, I know Excel and I can play in that, but I'm not. That doesn't, uh, it's, not a, it's not an area I gravitate to. I, I don't gravitate as much to left brain things. Mm-hmm as I do to right brain things. One of my sons, exact opposite, and I'm sure you guys all have examples of that. But in business and in business partnerships, I found that the most successful ones are ones that are complementary. And that's, you know, how God set this thing up is all about complementarity, right? Yes. And so, you know, the input person is the one who can attract and bring things in. And usually 
might be involved with areas like marketing or revenue or things like that, where it's about attracting opportunity, right? Partnerships, things like that. The throughput person is the one who can like see the process A to Z. How do we make this widget end up looking like this thing over here and knows how to set all those dials, right? And then the output person is the one who's really good at like merchandising and explaining and like conveying all of this magic to whatever the constituents are. And it seems to me just by meeting you guys together briefly that there's definitely some input, output, throughput going on between, I don't know the other person, but, you know, um, but that's, that's an important thing, you know, for business uh, endeavors in general. For sure. I, a business partnership is one that should be like a marriage that you're equally yoked in mm-hmm. your life stage, your life views, your, your politics. I'm, I'm totally cool working with people of all walks and all natures, but I want to marry somebody that's you know, in an equal yoking as I am about Mm -hmm. our faith and our our views. And I want to be business partners with somebody that's similar. And that's Nick and I overlap completely in our, our views and our life stage and young kids and all this stuff. But then our skill set, you've just nailed it. I think we might need to find an output person because I'm definitely on the input. Yeah, you're definitely he's he's throughput some output. Yep, and we're both kind of dabbling with the output part. Yeah, if you want to join our company and play the output. (laughs) Sadly, I'm more input than output. So the the Beatitudes is the two of us with Paul. Undivided life right now is the two of us and any contractors we bring in, including Paul on some of our offsites. But it's been neat to watch that Nick's kind of gravitational pull towards financial modeling, scaling you know, detailed analysis. But we were talking about that earlier, Nick, right? The whole idea of like, once a business gets to a certain moment, you've got these levers that start materializing and they're fun to look at because you're like, wow, if we pull down on this lever a little bit, then this thing happens. And if we don't do that, then bad things could happen. And it's like, you're almost like a, business meteorologist in a way, right? Where you can, <laughs> That's right. Am, yeah. I, am I close? No, to, I think, no, I think yeah. that, I think that is right. And it's, it's problem solving. And once you solve one, another one pops up, right? It's the whack-a-mole, like what's the bottleneck or what's the, you know, what's important now. Mm-hmm. And we've got all these, you know, ways to think about what's important now and how you should prioritize your time and your talent. And there's a, there's an equilibrium of, Hey, this is really important, yeah. but it's not urgent. Or this is important and urgent. Okay, we need to focus on that and forget everything else. And this is like a, uh, I'll get to it someday, right? And there's, there's, I think in in business you can get distracted like shiny object syndrome. Oh yeah, and like making sure Guilty. you're, you, especially <laughs> yeah. with creatives and entrepreneurs oh, yeah. and starters, right? That's the, cha- like, what's the next cool if new I had somebody thing? Here to just smack my hand every ten or twelve <laughs> minutes. I think that'd be really good. Keep me on track. Happens all the time, and that's and that's great, right? Like like. Getting from that off the ground, you need that like activation energy, right? Think back to like chemistry, that that point where you are creating something from mm-hmm. nothing, right? Some people have that skill set, others uh, come in later in the in the process. And that's that's where I've sort of, you know, grown up in business, if you will, taking companies from scrambling to scaling, right? Going from zero to fifty million of revenue, just a round number. Uh, is one skill set. And then from 50 to 250 is a different set of skills and processes and practices. And that's that's where I love to play because as a small team, you can have profound impact. 100%. So Nick, what if I get a whole bunch of businesses from zero to 50 and you just keep putting the right things in place to keep making all those businesses go to 250 so I can just back away? Yes. (laughs) Yes. Do you guys have, do either of you, could you, easily identify kind of your um, entrepreneurial or business kryptonite? 
Like if I said, I'll tell you mine, and you kind of hit on it a little bit, Nick, which is this sort of shiny object distraction. I'm, I'm a very stream of consciousness person. In the spiritual dimension, that can manifest itself in a, into a lack of discipline. Fortunately, my, I'm married to my wife, who helps me a lot. I also have a penchant for uh, physical fitness, and that helps too. But aside from that, my natural inclination is to, oh, that's interesting, and I'll just go walk over and look at that. And like, next thing I know, I've been there for 30 minutes, and now this deliverable is like stacked up, and it's still there. It's like a buzzard. You know what I mean? So my kryptonite is um, a little bit of distraction around things that may look good, objective. Like, I, I think that is a good idea. But what you said about important, urgent, you know, all those kind of things, that's where my kind of kryptonite resides. What about what about you guys? Can I have a couple? <laughs> yeah, you can, for sure. For sure. Number one, loneliness. Mm. I don't want to be alone. If I don't want to give a talk, end up in a hotel in Lincoln, Nebraska, and then get on an airplane tomorrow and have nobody to share that experience with. Once in a while, that's fine. But if I'm like my own company as an entrepreneur, mm. I would rather be on a team. I'd rather not be an entrepreneur than to have that. Mm -hmm. um, lack of authority. I don't like if there's so many decision makers that I know the right direction, but I've kind of lost my voice. Yeah, That doesn't excite me. And then I don't mind a skeptic. In fact, Nick knows that I love if somebody says, Jeff, I really don't think you can X, Y, and Z. And I'm like, oh, you don't? Yeah. Well, uh, why don't you, when you wake up tomorrow, check your email. I'll have it all done. You know, like I like that challenge. Yeah. But a nonstop skepticism, pessimism, it, it ends up wearing me down. And sometimes it's strategic because people know that if you feed off of it. I had an old boss who was like that. It was it was really brutal for me. I'm, I'm a guy who, I'm the same thing. I wanted a surprise and delight, right? You say, give me two by 9 a.m. I give you four by 8.30, right? Yeah. That's my thing. But when somebody is smart and they recognize that that's what drives you and they're not, um, you know, they're not oriented from a value standpoint the way that maybe we are, they, that can become abusive. And For I had sure. a boss who was like that, who was like, I know this guy's going to just jump as high as he possibly can. And I like, I paid a heavy price for that. Yeah, you're, an, you're a utility to his output that exactly. he wants. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. not right. And I, I jokingly do that with Jeff. Oh yeah, he's like, you can't get <laughs> oh, 10 there's, sponsors. There's no way you can have, yeah. <laughs> but because I know he's not being genuine, it doesn't it actually does, It doesn't me. actually work, that right? Has, yeah, it's got to be real. <laughs> um, for me, I think it's, a very stereotypical uh, for somebody who's more of a throughput mm -hmm. person, and that is overanalysis and easy to fall into when you come from a professional in professional investing background. Where okay, we're writing a big check, right? We're about to invest fifty or a hundred million dollars of our investors' money. Well, we need more data. We need more data. We need more data, and they have more data, and they have more data. But at some point you have to close. Mm. Otherwise, you're not making the investment, mm. right? And so there's a fine line and knowing where you're at on the data gathering versus, okay, I've got enough to move, right? And I think just a great example, right? With our business yeah. and these online classes, I started writing scripts in like the middle of COVID, but I never did anything with it, right? I, I had this idea and I wanted to do something. I felt called to put this into the world. And I was like, oh, well, I don't have the right equipment or I don't have, like, you can come up with all these excuses as a throughput person. And I think the thing that I've learned from Jeff, which is just so beautiful, like make mistakes and do it. Yeah. And then on the second round, it'll be better. Mm -hmm. Right. And you just have to get going. And, and I've seen it, I've seen it time and time again with, with these founders and entrepreneurs 
when I was in an investing role and you think, wow, okay, he just started selling something and then he went and built it. And that's actually the secret to everything. Like you sell it first and then that creates the obligation to create it. So if I'm hearing you the right way, it's almost like uh, your kryptonite might be, you know, measure twice, then cut, but you have a problem cutting sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I think that's very common. It is. Well, it can be. Yeah, for, for the, sure. For the prototype. When you actually do come to cut those, is it because you push yourself to cut or somebody says, hey, you know what? It's time. I think I am better at pushing myself, mm-hmm. uh, but I do think that's a learned skill. Mm. And what do we say when we make mistakes? It's great practice. Great practice. Amen to that. I'm blown away by how many kind of, uh, you know, secular business motifs or whatever when brought into a Christian context can be very, very helpful, right? I think of things like, you know, fail fast or, you know, the whole Facebook break things or um, the idea of like a scrum process, agile, like all of these things that came and were born out of the secular world and that paradigm and are foreign to a lot of, you know, values aligned organizations, especially mm-hmm. church organizations mm-hmm. that to them, it, it, it just hasn't like woven yeah, into the fabric. We're the ones who things. should be leading it in the church, right? But we're the ones having to learn it from a tech company. So I think the one that jumps out to me is celebrate failure. Mm. To me, celebrate failure is an homage to subsidiarity. Give true agency to somebody. Not because they're going to do it better than you or they're going to get it right, but because by giving them dignified work that they have real agency over, they're going to be formed in that process. And therefore, if they're doing it for God's glory, it's dignified and glorifying but also it's just forming them to be who God called them to be through work. Mm. Well, all these tech companies are like fail fast, celebrate failure. What did mm. we learn from that? And then you see these, these nonprofits and Christian organizations that are like, don't make any mistakes. If you make any mistakes, you're going to stand out. Just do the most mediocre version of your job possible. Don't yeah. sell, don't, <laughs> don't celebrate anything. You know, you're serving the Lord. So That's the, thanks the mission enough. is thanks <laughs> enough. Yeah. Right, right. It's a super scarcity mindset. You know what I mean? In yeah. a way. And, and, I think about this a lot in the area of content because our work touches on a lot of storytelling. And, you know, we've got the greatest story the universe has ever known. It's a story of the universe, right? And, but by and large, especially in this last, you know, century, I would say, we're really bad at telling it. And so I see this a lot, right? Part of the problem is that the very best minds, the the very best creatives, storytellers, Anthony D'Ambrosio accepted in that. We can talk about him too. Mm-hmm. But he's he's kind of an odd duck creatively, right? Um, for sure. For the most part, a lot of the greatest creative minds um, and strategic minds are dedicating their horsepower to other things. They're not dedicating that to the church, right? Yeah. And that's why you have like these amazing films that are just crafted in this beautiful way with the most incredible lighting and the best DPs and the best whatever. And the subject matter is total crap, but yep. it's shot. It's like the candy bar's rotten, but the wrapper is phenomenal. Right? <laughs> and we have the opposite. We've got like the most incredible candy bar and our wrapper is like, you know, I don't know what it is. It's just like lawn clippings half the time when it comes to storytelling. But in a business setting, same holds true. It's like you got all of these different tools, methods, processes, strategies, tried and true, right? How about test and learn? There's one yep. like that are like, these are non-controversial things that are foreign in many kind of churchy sort of settings. When I think about this, if you just took all these business books and started breaking them apart or business concepts that people love, I think they're all just retreads and repainting 
the teachings of Christ anyways. Exactly. Anything that's true Ex- and right comes extreme from Extreme ownership. Sure. Awesome book, awesome principle. We'll go back to subsidiarity. Conscious capitalism. We were talking about this earlier, that this whole idea that every stakeholder should win. You should exist for a higher purpose. You should be conscious about how you build your culture and lead people. Solidarity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's all right there. Mm-hmm. And I don't mind that people have to repaint it or re- rename it. But don't kid yourself. You didn't come up with this. Well, maybe that's the bigger <laughs> question is like, why Why haven't we been good at taking the church's social teaching into the business life of the church? Like if it's ours, why haven't we been good at doing it? What stands in the way of that? You know, there's this weird part where I feel like we, we've created a culture where people say, in humility, I need to be meek and meager as a church leader and as, a, as a, an employee of the church, the diocese, whatever. We almost automatically try to bring down like, oh, I settled for a job in the parish. Mm. You're working in the parish should be an incredible job, regardless of pay. Let's not talk about pay for a second. Pay is just a symptom of a real problem. The real problem is most of those cultures are pretty terrible. They're not led by by dynamic bosses. You have people who are not investing in the growth of each other in organizational development because we, we settled for that job or we settled that this is where... This is what it's going to be like because we're just a diocese. We can't be progressive. We can't create something beautiful. And then you have people like Edmundo up in the Archdiocese of Detroit. Mm-hmm. Those guys are pushing the envelope all, all, the time. all the time. And what they're creating is something beautiful and professional. And it's impacting people's lives. And it's fruitful from a business standpoint. And there's a lot of people that you and I both know like that. But unfortunately, we can probably name them all. I can. And most of them have been on the show. Yeah. You yeah. Know? They're yeah. my future guests with the Beatitudes. Right yeah, just, just look at my list. Right. You know? yeah. right. You're my, did, you want to, did you want to jump in on that, Nick? I, yeah, yeah. Let me, let me yeah. just say a couple of things. So, you know, the, the like, knowledge is power. So I'm going to hold as much knowledge to make myself look good in this organization. I think that's, that's such a perverse way of thinking and looking at things whenever, whenever really you should be taking the extreme opposite of that and going towards how can I make myself completely replaceable in this job? And that sounds really scary to a traditional minded business leader, but think about it, whether you're the owner of the business or a manager in a business, whatever it is. I mean, I just left my job after seven years. And as I reflected on that experience, my favorite experience was when my boss gave me the opportunity when I was probably too young to do it, get on a flight across the country and sit in a room with the CFO of a business that we were going to buy and build their company model for three days and come back with, well, I don't know what, right? He didn't know what I would come back with, but it turns out putting that pressure, which I was capable of handling, gave me the opportunity to crush it. And it was great. And then all of a sudden, he can see what I can do. He has greater trust in me and my skill set. Now our whole organization is better. He doesn't have to worry about those things going forward because he knows he can hand them off to me. Mm. So he can focus on the bigger things in his role. And the whole organization moves forward. And, And if you're a business owner and you ever think about selling your business or investors coming in, investors can sniff this out in the first meeting. Yep. (laughs) Maybe the second if they've like, Taking long, taking a long time to get to know you, but this is something that is a liability. If you've got all your, uh, you know, your fingers are plugging all the holes in the dike, right? As the as the founder, that's a that's a that's a bad thing. It's a red flag. Yeah, that's a bad thing. And mm-hmm. so this concept of subsidiarity and agency and and letting others fail is just so so important. And I've seen it play out in my own in my own career. Do you think there's a suspicion um, to the uh, to the fact that these are 
known sort of business things? In other words, is there a suspicion by people who are non-business to things because they are business? Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. You just, if you put the word capitalism, automatically there's this running away from it. Mm -hmm. And, but, but the same people that are pro-capitalism might run away when you say the word Catholic because it means something different or ugly or they've had a bad experience. And I think the humans keep messing up <laughs> some systems that are pretty good and, and the best of them all being the actual capital C church. I gave a talk a year ago and I just, instead of calling it conscious capitalism, I said Catholic capitalism. It's all the same stuff you talk about. Mm -hmm. And I had people that I didn't know had any faith whatsoever texting me and saying, you're 100% right. The principles that make a business run are truly taught by the Catholic Church in the catechism. They're truly coming from the teachings of Jesus and the gospel. And people want that truth, but we've let other people hijack our language about everything. Mm. Na name anything that has become, th that hasn't become hijacked by people that want to turn it into something ugly. Yeah. So instead, why don't we just take the language back and just Keep going with it, even if it, if it has bad connotation today. Well, like I said earlier, too, if it's true, if it's anything that's true, good, or beautiful, it has its origin in God, yes. period. And that, you know, we are God's church and therefore have a lot to give every sector of society. I want to talk—you just said something about, you know, you just switched the name and called it Catholic. But I want to ask both of you guys specifically, because you've got this undivided life, which, by the way, the very first time you came on my radar— was I think it was a talk that I had given on, it was one of these compartment sort of integrated Catholic life right. talks. And somebody said, do you know Jeff? And I was like, no, I don't know him. He's like, you should meet him because that's like his food group. Like he, he, he kind of lives that, that kind of, that kind of world. And so I reached out to you. Um, but that takes some doing, right? Especially if you've got some secular uh, background or experience, like when you start to integrate that, not just personally, but then try you exhibit or represent that integration outwardly. Yes, it carries with it some risk, yes. right? Um, and I kind of want to talk to both of you guys about when that sort of started to happen in earnest. You know, issues that came up or you know challenges, et cetera. J just in whatever order you want, but sure. that fascinates me. I'm very happy to speak on this and and kind of going in reverse order. The company I just left, I was the co-founder of this company. It's one of the largest energy advisory firms in America. I have 75 employees there. I mean, it was a big deal. And everyone there knew that I outwardly expressed the priorities that I shared with you earlier, that my faith comes even before my wife, mm -hmm. and I never talk bad about my wife or kids. I mean, there's all this thread. What's fascinating, though, is by God's grace and through a lot of work, I've also built the toolkit around communication and relationship building so that I can be in true dialogue and um, walk alongside people who don't share my views on anything, but still we have respect and dignity in those relationships. So therefore, I might be on a stage where they're talking about sustainability, or I might be in a small group or a one-on-one -on -one with people who believe the world to be counter than what I believe, but we're able to have respectful dialogue. Mm. And so now all of a sudden, their curiosity is peaked. Now all of a sudden, the, the, the staunch anti-Catholic wants to know why I talk about Jesus. And so it starts to be this bridge that I'm not changing their mind, but the Holy Spirit's working through both of us on each other. So I think equipping ourselves with those tools or whatever the gifts are that God gave us, amplifying those gifts is part of that evangelization of mm -hmm. living the undivided life. One of the biggest moments for me happened many years ago. I was probably speaker number four for young Catholic professionals when they started 12 or 13 years ago. 
And I can remember saying to myself, like, am I okay with this? Like my face is all over back then. I was on Facebook, right? And it's saying I'm this Catholic and I'm in this group. Am I okay with this? And I said, not only okay with this, there's something about this that I, I kind of want to rise to this challenge, this public challenge of using my gifts. And the affirmations I got from it were really strong. And then it made me do an inventory. How many times do I accidentally hide my faith? So mm. I was getting off the phone with my buddy from college. And these were my words. Hey, I got to go, man. I got to go take care of something. And I jump out of the car. And I get back in the car and I call him and I said, hey, Kent, that thing I have to take care of, it's confession. I'm going to confession. And he goes, yeah, I don't, I don't care. Why are you calling me? Yeah. I said, I care. I care that I called it a thing. And so that was like a freeing, liberating moment of he does care, but why was I calling it a thing? Why would I say mm. I'm busy tonight? Why wouldn't I say I'm going to, you know, a talk by Deacon Charlie? Like, let's just be honest about what matters to us mm. because you never know where that sparks curiosity and then where it reaffirms who you are. And I've tried everything else. I've tried being, you know, not wealthy, but, you know, have mm -hmm. liquid income and mm -hmm. travel and mm -hmm. Be a big deal. I used to dance off Broadway. There's all this cool stuff in my past. There's no fulfillment in it. But every time that I'm operating with integrity and putting God first and actually praying my way through everything I do, it is fulfilling. And it's it's kind of that love that satisfies. Nicholas? That's great. Yeah. Um, so one of the things we like to say is culture is the strategy of how you do business, right? Ooh. So everything from onboarding to offboarding and how you interact and show up with your uh, coworkers and employees, right? That's that's your culture, right? What are you doing on Tuesday afternoon? Because um, we can all have offsites and team lunches or whatever, but but how are you actually showing up day in and day out? And I think I think Satori was phenomenal at this. That's the firm you worked that, at before. That was my yeah my my uh, the investment firm in Dallas, Satori Capital, and from from their onboarding checklist, it's like. Be an adult, get your work done on time or whenever you say you are. If you're going to miss that deadline, communicate it in advance, right? These are not tough concepts to, to convey or, or live by, but do these things. And if you need to be gone for something, block your calendar, communicate it to the team, and just be an adult, right? Be a responsible uh, individual who loves and respects the others that you are working with. And things generally tend to work out. Right. So, so, you know, there's this whole mystique of like, how do you create a great culture? And I think it's really just like in the mundane, right? Like in the specifics um, and in the way that you love and respect one another, you'll find those uh, that that mystery is sort of unraveled. The one thing I would say is you're fortunate because you said accidentally withholding, you know, some something you're fortunate that in many or most of those cases, it was accidental. In my case, it was intentional where I was withholding some of that, right? I've got to go do this thing. Or, yeah, I can't then because, and the, the truth was because I'm at the parish doing something and, you know, and I would convince myself a lot that this is just information they don't need. It's irrelevant to them. But I had a, I went on a trip to Israel with uh, Steve Ray, yeah. well-known apologist um, who's now like a, Jerusalem expert. And I remember him telling his conversion story. And part of his conversion story was uh, his trepidation at sharing his newfound belief in the Catholic Church with his all-Baptist family. And a lot of his trepidation was rooted on one pivot point, which was, I he, this is him talking, I imagine myself, you know, kind of going to heaven afterwards. 
and sort of in this mystical way, passing all of these souls on the way and them looking at me and saying, why didn't you tell me? Yep. Right. It was like, well, it's, it's not relevant to you. Like we're talking about, you know, some deck that needs to get built and I've got to go to the parish for this meeting. So that doesn't really concern you. Right. But it's like, that might be the only, the only little Holy spirit nudge that that person gets all week, all month, all year. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so for me, it was the recognition that I had intentionally withheld a lot of my faith to these people that I spent gobs of time with that weren't getting the fullness of who I was. And by extension, I wasn't understanding who they fully were as well. You know well, let I mean? me take it back when I said accidentally, because there's plenty of times I'm in the exact same boat as you. And it was so freeing to stop living that way. Yeah. Because of discomfort, right? It's just, it's uncomfortable. It is. To bring it up. Sure, sure. But isn't it more uncomfortable to sit around thinking about everybody you love not going to heaven? I mean, that that's, I, I hope you deal with that discomfort head on and not the, hey, I can't help you with the deck anymore because I'm going to the parish. <laughs> exactly. And it's, and it's also, um, you know, interesting to me that in most cases, I'd say maybe nine out of 10, it's a response like the one that you said with your friend, which is like, yeah, that's cool. Or I don't know why you're calling me. That's fine. Go do what you do. Where we might fabricate like, oh my gosh, you know. And by the way, I have had, because I work in where I work and live where I live, I have had those very, you know, difficult exchanges um, uh, with people. E even um, in the startup world, uh, among people that I never anticipated would have that kind of perspective. So it hasn't all been, you know, peach fuzz when people find that out. But if we don't sort of incur a cost, it almost makes it, maybe it's not as real, right? It should cost us something. That's right. You know what I mean? Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. I think, I think we as, and I'll, I'll kind of talk, we as cradle Catholics, mm -hmm. I think we're great at filtering. And by great, I mean, we shouldn't do it. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we have this like, oh, they probably have already heard this or, oh, they probably already know about this thing that's happening. And so we just don't even say anything. And in fact, if they hear it from you and someone else and someone else, and they're like, wow, I've heard this five different times now. I guess this is a big thing or a big deal or I should look into this, right? It's a different opportunity or it hits them differently than if they read about it by themselves, but nobody else said anything. Oh, we're going to go to this thing or, you know, experience this. So don't, don't filter. I got to show you, I pulled up my phone because we're here in LA visiting from Texas. Mm -hmm. Tomorrow we have a lunch with somebody that I've spoken to once in my life and I don't remember this person. I was at a CEO summit full of people that have to have companies of a pretty large size, 250 of us in Austin. Out of nowhere, Jeff, hey, it was fantastic meeting you at the summit in October. This is like seven months ago. Our conversation about family, Catholicism, and business is something that has stuck with me ever since. Now that I'm about to be a father, I keep reflecting on your words and more. Brother, we're going to lunch tomorrow. I don't remember having that conversation because I finally decided that being who I am is like drinking water. Mm. I'm going to share it because I never know when that might happen. And the more you share it, the more you realize those little seeds are, are being planted and germinated and watered and growing. And I may never get to see it. That's fine. That's not why you're doing it. And if I can't catechize my own nieces and nephews and siblings and whoever, then at least maybe through me, mm. other people are getting it. And then maybe through Deacon Charlie or Nick Besner, my nieces and nephews and everybody else are getting some fed in some of those ways or curious because they want to have the joy that they see 
somebody else living a gospel life. I think water is a great image too, because the other thing that I took for granted, certainly a lot in those situations was the fact that everybody's pretty damn thirsty. (laughs) You know, it's like, oh, you you don't need to know this. You just throw away the fact that for the most part, our entire lives are built around trying to seek God, whether we know it or not, whether we understand it's God that we're looking for or not. And, and, you know, you're probably offering water to everybody is probably a good bet that some that people are going to take a drink. Have you ever used that analogy Never. before? Because I'm just picturing like you got that backpack of water on, you got a couple in your hands and your friends are parched and you're just pouring out the water because you're like, you guys are fine over there. You guys are good because yeah. you, you, you look unthirsty. Yeah. You know what I mean? Right. You, you don't want this water. You're not, you're not, you're not into it. Yeah. I mean, look, I, I think everybody, you know, we've got so many different counterfeits now and, you know, um, a lot of fake religions popping up, whatever you want to call them, right? Um, a lot of ideologies that, that are out there that really, in a way, are just a deep longing to solve for what men and women are longing for, which is a relationship with their creator. If you, if you go back to this, like, what is true and good and beautiful, I have found that one of the number one ways that people end up talking with me about faith is because of the way I talk about family. When somebody says, oh, you have six kids, like, I bet you're so happy to be in L.A., you know, away from them. And I'm like, make no, no mistake about it. Yeah. This is actually, you know, I love being with you, but there's no part of me that loves being away from them. Mm -hmm. Every moment I get to spend with them is a blessing. Every moment I get to be dad, whether they're sick or healthy, cranky or happy, like that's my vocation and my vocation to my, my, my spouse, right? This covenant relationship is even more important. There's no ball and chain and oh, what a drag. I love and cherish my wife the same way both of you do and the same way I've heard you both talk about your spouses. When you start talking like that to people, yeah, it's, that's where they get to faith, God, absolutely meaning well, they, of life, because it's it sticks out. How, how, you got six. How many kids do you have, Nick? Two. You got two. And and is there like a, your your go to line when people go six? Is there your go to? <laughs> do you have say, a go to? I have five, so I have a go to. If you liked yourself as much as I like myself, you'd do it too. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think there's this like. Uh, and you probably get this in LA a lot more than in than in Texas. Sure. But when when I say I've got five kids, I mean that's literally it's like what on purpose? How like, many marriages? What's how wrong, many marriages? What's wrong, what's wrong with, with you? you? Yeah. What's wrong with you? You know. Um, and you know, I depending on the pastoral circumstances, I take different approaches. But yeah. but one of them is like, well, you want to know what's really hard is having one kid. Yeah. That's super hard. And I speak from experience. You know, yeah. so you have one, it's like, it's impossible. You have two, it gets, it's still really hard. Once you get into that, the moment of inflection is around three, yeah. right? And then it's like, they kind of start operating as a, as a group, spending more time with one another, taking care of each other. By the time you're at five, it's like, you're golden. Oh, it's absolutely. Like, you know, and by the way, five isn't big. My mom was one of 13. Yeah. I'll say things like that. Yeah. I want to do whatever I can to demystify this yeah. idea. Because anything more than two has become like, there's something wrong with you, like you just said. Yeah, it's funny because it's not like you have six at one moment. Right, exactly. <laughs> it's <laughs> six tuplets. Although, although some have had that, some yeah. uh, or even or even more than that. When when COVID hit, my kids had such a blast that we took their iPads away permanently mm. instead of giving it to them to try to pacify them because they became best friends mm. in everything they did. My kids span the ages of nine to eight months, nine years old to eight months. That makes a nine-year-old play with a two-year-old because they don't feel seven years apart. They have so many siblings in between that they just feel like they're part of this common thread. Mm. And it's really, really beautiful what siblings are as a gift, 
you know, God willing that you can have multiple, it is the coolest thing in the world to watch. And it is so fulfilling. On our, on our very first date, my wife and I named our daughter Lorelai. I took her on a date because I said we were supposed to get married. So this is like total Holy Spirit. We talked about having this big family in prep that if God lets us live to old age, we'd have a backyard full of grandkids. That was it from the awesome. first date. What about you? Uh, in sorry, just in regards to kids. Like, yeah, yeah. So we've got your kids are. We've got two. Yeah. Uh, they're three and one. We've been married four years. So uh, Good we statistics. We're <laughs> we are uh, we're behind we're behind the shuffle binds, but but we're uh, we're we're younger. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got significantly. More, we've got more energy. Uh, we're coming for you now. <laughs> Uh, my my wife's one of six. Like like you just said, my my parents come from big families. Uh, mom's one of six. Dad's one of seven. So big families. Like if a, if a house is empty or only has a few people in it at a holiday, like something's wrong. So that's just my experience, and that's what I want to. You know, my wife and I are, are on the same page. There, I remember because I'm a revert. You know, I don't know if you guys know that, but I'm a revert to the church. My wife is a convert, and I remember early in my reversion. This is probably going back. Yeah, maybe 15 or so years, maybe a little bit longer. I remember I got invited to a party out in Pasadena. And it was uh, a Mormon buddy of mine. And it was family friends of theirs. And they were Mormons. And I think they had eight kids. Oh. people, And the youngest was maybe six. And the oldest was like mid-20s. Okay, And I remember having a conversation with the patriarch of this family. Just like sitting outside at a picnic table or something. And one of the kids showed up behind him as he's talking to me. And then another kid. And then another kid, and then another kid. At, till the end of this conversation, we were talking about something. I don't even remember what it was. It wasn't like profound, right? But I remember seeing him at the center, and on each side, he was flanked by like four or five kids. Oh. And looking at that, and and then the first thing that struck me was the words of the psalmist that say that you know sons, which also means daughters, sons and daughters are like arrows in a quiver, oh. right? And it's like, I mean, it just struck me. I was like, oh, I get this, and like, why wouldn't I? you know, want the same thing. And, you know, sadly at that point, um, because I was just not well-formed in my faith and didn't understand a lot of things, my wife, after our last uh, biological uh, child, because I've got adopted kids too, out of, uh, after our last bi- biological child, it is super casual way, the, the uh, OBGYN was like, well, you know, we're going to have you open anyway. Like she was talking about a Buick, you know what yeah. I mean? We're going to have you open anyway, so we may as well, you're not going to have any more kids, are you? So we're just going to, and I remember the words were like hovering there like a cartoon right over my head. My wife looks at me and she goes, I guess, right? I don't know. Like she's not churched at all, eventually converts. I'm kind of faded from the church and no. coming back. And I remember, and if I have a regret is that moment sure. where I was like, yeah, I guess. I had no clue, right? Mm. And then having the experience of seeing that guy with his kids behind him at that moment, it was so profound for me. And, and deeply troubling at the exact same time because I had sort of allowed this thing yep. right to, to to take place. Now God has rewarded me in so many different ways where I've been able to be a spiritual father, an adoptive father, sponsor yep. father, all these other kinds of fatherhood that I never expected. But it became real for me then. You know that that moment was like crystallized. I love your honesty and all of that too because that's sometimes hard to reflect on because that's a moment that you kind of want to punch yourself in the stomach. Oh, it I guess. Yeah. yeah. You know, uh, so when we were getting ready, we don't find out the gender of our children. But when you talk about like, what is my comeback line to something? One of the most evangelical or evangelical, evangelical. Thank you. Yeah. Ways that I can work with somebody 
is they'll say, what do you guys have in boy or girl? I'll say, whatever God's going to give us. Oh, nice. You know what they say next? As long as they're healthy. And I say, even if they're not, amen. And so then I had one that wasn't. I had a son born three and a half years ago whose lungs did not open at birth. Mm. And at midnight that night, they brought Amanda down. She was recovering from her C-section so that we could say goodbye to our son. I was going to baptize him. and He was going to die in our arms because he'd gone 18 hours without taking a breath. At this point, he's paralyzed, sedated, on tons of drugs, and they're shoving air in his body. They ripped his lungs open. They have a tube in his side. Well, at noon the next day, he still hasn't died. We had him baptized by a priest when he was 24 hours old. And I sent out the Facebook email, like, mm. everybody of faith, pray for this boy. Mm. Next x-ray, his lungs are open. The doctor's crying. Everybody's moved, but they're still like, we got a little ways to go, blood transfusions. Comes out of sedation at day five. We hold him at day eight. He comes home at day 16. When I made it back to work and when I started finally getting back out into society like six weeks later, how many people came up to me and said, I keep thinking about when you said, even if they're not healthy, that is my son or daughter that God chose for me. Amen. And that hit them, right? It caused them to have to pause and say, what do I think? Mm. And then here's this miracle boy that everybody knows. It's like medicine stopped him from dying for the first day, but prayer caused him to live. There's no, medically they were done for a long time before that. So I'm changing him at home and he has this wound on his side where they had to pierce him and drain out his lungs that they were ripping open. So I kiss this thing and I'm looking at him. He's just in his diaper. And at the time I could see a wound on each one of his hands, a wound on each one of his feet from all the pick lines and IVs and, wow. a, and where his side was pierced is still, that scar is still there. And I just cry on this boy and I'm like, you are a perfect living miracle witness to God's love. And Ambrose alone, I was just reading a note to Nick on the drive to your house, the two-minute drive from breakfast to your house, that was all about somebody saw Ambrose at Mass the other day and couldn't believe that this little three-and-a-half-year-old boy was all boy because they remember doing rosaries with us in the hospital chapel. So, like, the way we talk about just a baby or a crazy three-year-old or having six kids can lead people, again, to what's true and good and beautiful. Mm. So— I might not be able to say evangelical, but I can do but it. But you can be evangelical. <laughs> I'll take the B is better than A. And then, and then, <laughs> yeah, that's right. Just start. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's like what I wrote down earlier. We were talking about just start. I was like, yeah, I just click buy it and we'll just see yeah. if it works. Fire, <laughs> ready, aim. That's my approach. Uh, I, I got a chance, uh, not with my own kids, but um, we work with homeless families and have for my wife and I. Uh, run a an apostolate and have for the last 20 years that works with homeless families. And our focus is families. In in California, about 30% of the homeless population is families. So usually mom with kids living in cars or living out on the street or coming in and out of shelters, that kind of thing. And one of our families, um, the matriarch called my wife and said, you know, uh, we have a problem with one of her daughters who was 15, pregnant at the time. And had a, um, I forget what it's called, oh, preclamp, preclampsia? Preclampsia. preclampsia. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so it was a very dangerous situation, mm-hmm. had the baby, and the baby was born without intestines, or the intestines were black and dead. They were necrotic. They were just basically gone. Yeah. And so they're freaking out. I'd just been ordained, and they called me and said, will you go and do something? And I was like, sure. Well, I'll go baptize that baby at yeah. a bare minimum. So I went to the, to the NICU, and I talked to the, uh, the, uh, you know, the doctor, the pediatrician, surgeon, or whatever it was. Italian guy, he'd been practicing for like 35, 40 years. And he told me, he's like, well, I, look, what you need to do is just prepare them because this child will not last the night. 
And so I said, okay. And I went over there and I said, well, do you mind if I baptize him to the, to the doctor? He's like, no, absolutely. He's like, look, you know, at this point, sure, whatever. And so I went, I prayed with the family and I baptized a child. A uh, child didn't die that night and he didn't die the next night or the night after that. About a week later, um, I got a call from the, the daughter as well, <laughs> the, the same daughter, um, you know, saying, he's still with us. Do you want to come back and visit us? I said, sure. So I went over there and visited, spoke to the same doctor and he said, uh, I've been practicing medicine for almost 40 years. And what he explained to me was that um, after his baptism, his intestines began to uh, turn like flesh color. No. Like stop, stop being dead, basically. Wow. And uh, this kid made full recovery. And he told me, he's like, I've never seen, I don't even know how to explain. He said he felt stupid talking to the parents afterwards yeah. because his last conversation with them had been this like very like, you know, picking out the size of the casket kind of thing. Um, and, uh, and I was like, well, look, just be happy, be happy for them and go in there and say, Hey, great news. Yeah. They're not going to hold you accountable for anything. You know, it's another subject, how litigious we've all gotten about things. But, um, so like we can't, you know, miracles happen and why would, sh why should we be surprised? You know what I mean? And it, it's something I have to remind myself often that, you know, that God's miracles are still everywhere. Um, if we just have the eyes to see. Yeah, and if you have the eyes to see, I think the closer you are to the front lines, you're a scientist, you're a doctor. Like, you feel like you have all this control, and then you see— Every doctor you know has stories like this, mm. by the way. A lot of them will deny it, they'll excuse it, they'll come up with something else to explain it. But you and I both know what's happening in those situations. I think that uh, the amount of times that I hear about doctors— who come to realize that because they're practicing their craft, that they're the smartest person in the room, they've been trained better than anybody, and then miracles happen mm. is a game changer. And in the story of Ambrose, the doctor actually pulled us aside and she started getting flustered and she said, come to my office. And on the way there, she started crying and she opened the door and she said, I'm so sorry I'm crying, but I have good news. And I said, no, that's okay. Please cry for our son. Yeah, well, yeah. And she said, I straight up last night praying for your son because I don't know what to do medically, but I know how to pray. She said, don't tell anybody this, but take a picture of the screen right now because that's the x-ray that shows his lungs are open. Brother, when he turned three, June 24th, 2022, that's the Feast of St. John the Baptist, the Feast of the Sacred Heart of uh, Jesus, and the overturning of Roe v. Wade. And my son turns three, and I'm in a Eucharistic adoration that morning where all I can see on the body of Jesus is that x-ray of my son's lungs. Mm. And so there's something so beautiful and miraculous. And if you're on the front lines— I hope that you stay open to what the Holy Spirit's going to present to you because it's happening every day everywhere. in those hospitals. But yeah, everywhere. So we're in the season of Easter and we're a people of hope and we're an Easter people. So we're very optimistic. But if I was going to ask both of you guys, what worries you the most about your children's future in the U.S.? What, what would you say right now? That's a really tough one because I've tried to convince myself to not worry. And that, and you should. Yeah. and and But there's a little bit of a false pretense to that. I think it's that things that you can't unsee are attacking our kids. They are the pornography and um, false beliefs and the bullying and the, you know, causing you to be depressed through social media, whatever it is. Your kids don't even have to go looking for it. It is looking for them. Mm. And so I just want kids to be able to be the age that they are. And that that's, shrinking quickly, right? Like what we used to ex be exposed to at 12 is now happening at seven. Yeah. It's early onset adulthood. There's actually like terminology for this dynamic. Yeah. yeah. So I think I think about that one a whole lot. I mean, I've locked up the iPads and a 
four-year-old game somehow had pornography on it. And it was the weirdest thing I've ever seen. It was like an ad that they found a way to embed that was a graphic NC-17 plus, whatever the rating is, ad that my seven-year-old handed me and said, what is this? I don't even understand what this game is. And I was like, how did this get on here? This thing is so locked down. So it's it's trying to find our kids, and I, I want kids to be kids. So I do worry about that. Mm. Yeah, I think there's the thing the thing that's coming up for me is like the the inability to have real conversations and just getting shut down, right? I think mm. it's even pervasive into, you know, college campuses at this point where, you know, you can't question my beliefs because they're my beliefs, right? And it's just this like foundational go back to first amendment and free speech and if you can't talk with somebody who even if they're you know, whatever difference in background or faith or belief or anything like that, having, having just that humanity to say, Hey, let's meet at this table, discuss and learn because we're going to make each other better and sharper. And I can respect you, even though you believe something different than me, like that is, I feel getting a little bit lost. Mm. And so that's the thing that I think about of like, how can I, as a father, lead my children into openness, open-mindedness, even in the face of a world that's going opposite of that. And I love this quote from, from, uh, Brian Johnson. He runs a, uh, like coaching program, but you know, I don't want to be well adjusted to a profoundly sick society. Right. <laughs> and so I just love that one. And so, so really as, as society has gone one way, I think being strong as a father and as a leader of your family, like those are the things that are on my mind as my children, which are, you know, still under the age of five, but it's, it's the things I'm thinking about long range um, that that I want to help prepare them for. What's the line from Romans about be, tra- tra- be transformed or something about, uh, is it Romans 12 maybe? <sighs> I'm, I'm trying to look it up. You know what I'm talking about? I, like, I do. Uh... <laughs> It's not twelve, twelve. Oh well, my citations are off. You're the one who went through the diaconate process. <laughs> so, it's a, so it's a miracle I know any scripture. If you, it, if, if you knew what you were saying, my friend, um, I'll find it. But there's something about you know not transforming yourself to the to the world. Don't be conformed. But, yeah, yeah. But, can, but transform you know yourself right to this sort of greater reality. Yeah. Yeah. I think we need a um, a sequel to the Screw Tape Letters. Oh, I think that yes. would help culture mm. tremendously if we had some modernize like the dialogue between the devil. I mean, that is because I mean, think about it. We, we forget how smart, right? Satan is. And it's like one of the things that the, the, what you just described, Nick, to me is a brilliant stratagem. It's like, well, we, you know, from the devil's purview, which could be the name of the, the book, by the way, but from the devil's purview, you can see like, okay, every time they get together and they talk, and then the Holy Spirit comes in and uses that interaction to kind of help them get out of a jam or whatever. So what are yeah. ways that we can keep them from talking and at the same time make them feel like they're doing it for a principled reason? Yeah. So let's introduce this dynamic where like my thought is my thought, my view is my view. My truth is my, my truth. truth <laughs> is my truth. And if just even you engaging in that is off limits. Yeah. That'll keep them from talking. I mean, it's like. This is not accidental, right? It's like, and so it'd be fascinating to kind of look at some of those ills of today and recapture a work like that and and just, because we know what it did for the culture the first time, yep. a book like that. 
Um, Have you seen these commercials? And I don't know who's really behind this. It's like the Jesus was one of us commercials. Oh, he gets us, yeah. Yeah, Jesus gets us. Mm -hmm. I'm not a big TV guy, but I remember maybe around the holidays catching that one that says, Jesus uh, disagreed with the people he loved. He didn't disown them. Yeah. And this cancel culture turns into cancel family. You know, cancel that you're not allowed in my life. I'm going to cut you out so you never see... The grandkids, there's such an ugliness in that, but that has to be just 100% rooted in the devil's plans. Break mm. apart the family, yep. make us disown each other, make all of us our own gods so that we have nobody else to worship but our own selfie and our own likes and our own whatever beliefs, to your point, Nick, that our beliefs become our identity. It's it's maniacal and it's working. Mm. But I also think you go back to what you said, we're, we're an Easter people and a people of hope. I want anybody who's listening who's well-formed to recognize the responsibility that they have to have and give hope. Mm. If we take out hope, then we're actually part of the problem. We have hope because we know we're on the team that wins, right? This isn't—the church isn't going away. We've already proven that, that how many thousands of times we try to ruin it as humans, but it's bigger and and more important than us as humans. Uh, In the end, if we do it right, we're going to end up— with an eternity in heaven, you know, we're promised God's salvation uh, if we go through this life and do what we're, we're called to do and who we're called to be. So if we don't have hope and we don't give hope, we actually add to the problem. Like you can have strong beliefs, but if all you're doing is attacking your own priest and bishop and the church and organizations that are trying to do good, I hear people attack that ad, right? That Jesus Oh, I saw it too. I us. commented a bunch of stuff online. Yeah. Tons of haters. I'm sure yeah. it's not perfect. Or people that want to dog the chosen or they want to dog... What... Listen, if you sell a chocolate cross and Stover's <laughs> makes a bunch of money and that's a w- way that a kid gets to see the cross and ask, what is this? Thanks. Great. For, thanks for the powerful chocolate. Like it's, it's part <laughs> of the process. The organization behind that campaign is called the Signatory, okay. which, and, and I met with them once. Yeah. Uh, I believe that they're Protestant run, but that's, it's like a, a, a donor advised fund. Yeah. So lots of people with money who are trying to make things happen. But the, the, the target for that campaign, at least as I understood it, was people who are not church, people who are not you know, so like, whereas the naysayers were pretty much people who are a little bit further down their walk faith-wise, right? So I actually was very supportive of the effort of the campaign, especially in the setting that it got, like the Super Bowl. I mean, you know, a lot of Jesus. 30 seconds, they found a way for you to like get sucked into a story and then get hit with a message. And it was also done very differently, right? I mean, most of these commercials in the Super Bowl are all flash and comedy. And this one was like this kind of black and white, scaled down handheld sort of shots and then just like simple text. And I was like, wow, that's certainly sticks out. I'm all for those things. Well, it's like uh, when people judge why something happens, like, oh, he's just going to to church or to RCIA because he wants to marry that girl. Great. That's the Holy Spirit is working through that girl (laughs) that he wants to marry. You know, somebody goes into a church just because they think that it has the greatest organ in town. Great. Now you're sitting there in the liturgy. Or it's it's a pretty backdrop for pictures. Yeah, one of my daughters is away from the faith right now, but she got married in the church. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, you know, let that sacrament do its job. That's right. You know, it'll take some time. Grace in that. All right, before we get to our final segment, gentlemen, Wait What? Long Awaited, which you guys can team up with one another, make this a lot easier for you. <laughs> but before we get to that, like, what's, uh, what do you want folks to know about Undivided Life, about the Beatitudes podcast? Like, what's next? What? How do folks track all this stuff, all this progress? Yeah, I'll start on the podcast. So we launched the Beatitudes. Dudes, sorry. Yeah, no, no. Yeah. And it's important because some people don't think it's funny until I explain to them that 
It's not Beatitudes. That's pretty Well, if they normal. saw the logo, they would get it right away. That's holding right. it in my hand. <laughs> Tops it with the underlined dudes and the three faces there. Easy to see. So the Beatitudes Dudes uh, is a, it's a weekly podcast that you can find on every major pod, podcast platform and YouTube. I love it, though, because it makes faith conversations accessible. It even makes Catholicism accessible to a Protestant or somebody who's, you know, mildly churched. Because it's fun, it's true friendship. Look it up; it's a great, it's a great time, and we're getting great feedback. Um, on the front of undivided life, what I want people to know is there's a better way to run organizations and businesses than what we're all used to, and it starts by just humanizing business by bringing dignity back into the workplace and our communication and the way we build relationships. And that if you were just to take at first a scoreboard view of that discussion, you're going to build better healthier businesses that get a better return. So mm. even from the selfish capitalist point of view, it's a good investment. Now, you should really be doing it for some sort of a higher purpose and understanding that making money is not a good reason to exist. It's an output. Like your body doesn't exist to pump blood and breathe oxygen, but you kind of need to and you need to make money. But you can create organizations that that promote human flourishing where people are grown to be the best version of themselves and that our version of success is that Yes, the organization grows and does what it's supposed to and, and achieves its mission, but that also the human beings involved in it that are touching it in any way are better human beings because of it. They're because better spouses it, yeah. and parents and children and whatever they are in their life, members of the community. So I don't know if you'd have anything. We do consulting and online classes and look it up at undivided.life. We bought undivided.life. That's the coolest. Didn't even know that dot .life was a domain. It you is, yeah. Undivided.life and thebeatitudes.com. Mm-hmm. Nice. Well, you know, goes without saying, but just to say it, that, um, you know, my prayers, and by extension, that of this audience, I'll, I'll usurp their prayer power, um, goes to the continued flourishing of your ministry, businesses, and, um, and you know, we hope for only the greatest prosperity to come from all of that, all what, of that work. World needs it. So thank you. And would you job. consider being a actual guest on the Beatitude. You're already a Beatitude. Will you come on air with us? Come on. Come of course. On. Come on. It'd be great. But I have to do it in person though. I know. Yeah. Dallas, yeah, Texas. Absolutely. I owe you a trip back, so we'll just have to schedule that. Good. Awesome. All right, gentlemen, are you ready to play? Wait, what? I don't know. Wait. Okay. <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> All right. So, and we have to, dis- you know, you guys can decide the rules on the fly here, whether or not you get to consult with one another or just blurt it out. <laughs> So here we go. Three questions that I think either one of you could equally answer, and maybe together you're going to be a a, tri- a double threat. Let's okay. do the thing where we answered at the same time, washing each other's mouths. <laughs> I'll let you guys count that. Here we Our go. Policy. Question number one, gentlemen. Okay, so Dallas, the city you both call home, features a rare natural attraction with a deeply theological provenance. This geographic wonder has a striking resemblance to a famous body of water in Africa. Though it had various indigenous names prior, its current name is based on the name it was given in the 17th century, which was La Santísima Trinidad. What is this? Ding, 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 the Trinity River. River. Correct. All right. Yeah, that's right. The Trinity River. I hopped in there. Brother, I didn't know anything (laughs) else you said, but I was like, river, okay. (laughs) You're like, (laughs) Trinidad. Trinidad. La Santísima Trinidad means the Holy Trinity. Don't drink it. The Trinity River uh, (laughs) was actually named La Santísima Trinidad in 1690 by Spanish explorer Alonso de León. 
Uh, and um, it had, like I said, previous indigenous names prior to that, but that's the one that it still goes by this name. And interestingly, it actually has four uh, like branches instead of three. So I don't know where the Trinity attribution came from. So it's like one big thing, but then it breaks off into four. Well, and, and like there's like that West Fork and all those like names mm. that are actually tied to it where they filmed Dallas. The show Dallas oh, was really? at West Fork, I think is the name of it. But yeah, there's right. kind of all those different pieces to it. Now, it's funny you bring this up because I say that Dallas, Texas, if you want to get into your Catholic faith, that the Nile River of Catholicism is running straight through Dallas, mm-hmm. Texas. Just dip your toe in and you'll find your people. Or float around in a basket. <laughs> Somebody will find you. Somebody will find you. All well, right. I'll raise you. Beautiful. Bat in a thousand. <laughs> Just another kid. Yeah. What's, what's one more? Are right, you ready for question number two? This is a multiple choice question. Uh, I know you're also both Texas A&M grads. So clearly you'll have no challenge with this trivial (laughs) architectural question. Texas A&M has a unique connection to the Catholic Church through one of its most famous landmarks. Can you identify which of the following structures on campus is modeled after a renowned Catholic structure in Europe? Is it Albritton Bell Tower, Rudder Tower, the academic building or the administration building? And I'm happy to go through this again if you need to. Which of those is modeled after a renowned Catholic structure in Europe? And I can give hints. So I, the reason that, that I pictured Albritton Tower before, Albritton Tower, you said you made me Sorry, say it differently. That's yeah, okay, sure you're not negative. Mm-hmm. I pictured it at first because I was just trying to think of some of these towers that you see. And that's uh, the one that's just right by the uh, yeah, field the, right the there. Qua- yeah, yeah, I was going to say the quad, but yeah, right over there by the railroad tracks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where they do yep. final review. So that yeah. one jumped out at me, but geez, the administration building looks so Roman to me. I don't I don't mm. know, but my gut still goes with the tower. I'll, I'll take I'll take the admin building. Oh, so we're going against each other here. <laughs> You're going against you. So you, so you say A, Albritton Al- 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 Bell Tower, and yep. you say D, the administration building? Yep. And you're both wrong. (laughs) The correct answer is C, the academic building. Uh, Its design was inspired by the Basilica. Wait a minute. There's an academic building here? There is. Sorry, go ahead. (laughs) Right. True. Good point. You're so funny, Jeff. Good point. Um, So it turns out that the academic building was designed, its design was inspired by the Basilica of St. Martin of Tours, who's right back behind you, gentlemen, right there in that that picture. St. Martin of Tours. Uh, the that church, which was currently the, the most recent version of that church in France, was uh, consecrated in 1925. But it was originally built in the year 471, and that's where the remains of Saint Martin of Tours um, are presently interred. So yeah, apparently the academic building was inspired. I guess it's like that little dome thing in the mm-hmm. back. Oh, that, makes, yeah. that makes sense. Yeah, was inspired by that. Now I remembered which one is the academic. Oh, building. Well, I, I knew which one. <laughs> You threw me off at the, the dome the is Roman. pretty amazing. Yeah, the dome yeah. is amazing. What you're basically saying is anybody could have taken a flyer at these and probably gotten it better than two Texas well, A&M what do you know? what do you know? You always just, if you don't know the answer, guess C. That's always the right. You should have known. <laughs> I feel like there's going to be a bunch of people rushing there when this podcast hits. I think so, too. I think so, There too. was, I will say, uh, was this two years ago, Eucharistic procession through the middle of A&M's campus and it went right by the academic building. It was a big deal. I heard it has a, I mean, it has a really thriving Catholic thriving. community. Yeah. It's yes. amazing. St. Yeah. St. Mary's is amazing. Yeah. There's more practicing, practicing Catholics at Texas A&M than there are students at most college campuses, period. 
or the or Catholic campuses. I'm oh, sure. Oh yeah, yeah, <laughs> for yeah. sure. sure. Yeah. Sheer volume. Yeah, yeah. yeah. more we practicing were, Catholics than enrollees at schools that claim to be Catholic. We're a stone's <laughs> throw from Loyola Marymount University. It's a lovely campus, and I'm sure beautiful people that work there. But it's like 20 percent Catholic. Do you know what the enrollment? Mm. It's a Catholic total, school. Yeah, I know. What's the total enrollment there? I think it's like maybe six thousand. Yeah, there's probably like more like sixteen thousand practicing Catholics at, at Texas A&M. A&M. Yes. It's unbelievable. Nice. And you're turning out priests left and right, priests turning into bishops. You have people going off on incredible work with apostolates and religious life. Um, I actually know an Aggie who just went and joined the Norbentine Order out here. Oh, really? Yeah, Saint, phenomenal. Saint Michael's Abbey, just yeah. down the way. That's another place. If we had the app, we could see which other places are around us right now. <laughs> that we were talking Get about. on that, Deacon Get Charlie. on I got it. I got it. <laughs> All right, final question. Here we go. And this is a fill-in-the-blank question that is going to test your knowledge of finance and faith. So we'll see. (laughs) Gentlemen, this institution, which is connected, by the way, to a number of Texas financial organizations, was established in 1942 to, quote, provide for the safekeeping and administration of property transferred or entrusted to it by physical or juridical persons and intended for works of religion or charity. Okay, so we're looking for an institution. Its official name, the official name of this institution in Italian is, listen closely, Istituto per le opere di religione. But in the States, we would know this institution as blank. It is a financial institution for the safekeeping and administration of property that is entrusted to it by physical persons or juridical persons and intended for works of religion or charity. And I can give hints. Hint, please. <laughs> okay. Where, the, the official name is Italian, right? So this, this, organiz, this financial institution was established in 1942 in Rome. And we know it by a name. And I gave you the full name of it in Italian. Istituto per le opere di religione is what it would be in Italian, which is the, the Institute for, the, for Religious Operations or something close to that. My well, we would know it as goodness. this. And when you hear it, you're going to be like, oh my gosh. We would know it as this. And uh, further hint, it is constantly in the news. Constantly in the news. And this is in Dallas? <laughs> no. Texas? No, oh, okay. this actually cur- curiously okay. has a connection with Dallas financial institutions. Yes. But it's not in Dallas, no. Okay. I feel like I'm going to end this whole show on such a downer That's right okay. now. Don't worry about it. No, for me, I'm worried. Remember, fail, remember, fail fast. <laughs> fail fast. Remember, stay hopeful. Stay hopeful. <laughs> <laughs> My hope is waning. It's... All right, final, final yeah. hint. Three words is how we would know this. Three words. Oh, my goodness. Founded in Rome, 1942, financial institution, has connections with Dallas financial organizations. Yo, we need to just invoke some sort of saint here. You want to call your host Lifeline? Because I could just give you the answer. You need to. Yep. Yeah? Yes. The answer is the Vatican Bank. Oh, give me a break. The give Vatican me a break. Bank. Yes. I'm sorry. That Wait, Vatican what? <laughs> <laughs> I thought for sure that one Nick had. I'm going to blame Nick. I was never signed up to be the financial guy. You know... <laughs> The Vatican Bank never comes up at J.P. Morgan. <laughs> <laughs> but for some reason, there's a ton of headlines all the time on the Vatican this and no, the Vatican that. No, that's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The Vatican Bank is the Istituto per le opere di religione, 
which is, I guess, its formal canonical Only name. since 1942. 1942 seems so 1942 late. 1942 is when that was was founded. Correct. Mm, that's where it got me. Seems off mm-hmm. by a thousand years. <laughs> <laughs> what did they do before that? Did right. They, you know, kept, right. They kept the money somewhere Coins else. Coins in a coin purse? They were just bartering with uh, furs and pelts. There it is. There you go. Um, awesome. Well, gentlemen, thank you so much for stopping by, being guests on the show. You're welcome anytime. I look forward to going to Dallas and doing the same in return. Uh, any final parting words to our audience? Thank you for everything that you do, because there are so many people that I know you bring hope to. And so I'm always praying for people on the front lines. Thanks for everything you do. We are just glad to be um, kind of on the team, right? We're, I, I'm your backup quarterback and we got our wide out right here. So perfect. Well, thanks be to God. Just Amen. full of gratitude. Thanks, thanks, Nick. And if you're hearing our voices, that means it is time to subscribe, to follow the show, to share this episode with whoever you were inspired to think about during listening to it. We'll see you again next time on Living the Call. This podcast is part of the Spoke Street Network. For more great podcasts, visit Spokestreet.com.